The IMG Roadmap is the only podcast dedicated to coaching international medical graduates and success blueprints for this unique pathway. I am Dr. Nina Loom, your host, a previous IMG turned hospital medicine physician, healthcare administrator, speaker, and coach. I empower, encourage, and equip you with actionable steps that you can take towards the residency position of your dreams. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the IMG Roadmap Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Kenya. She is a friend of mine from the Instagram, just like a lot of you whom I've met virtually. I'm really excited to have her on the show today. Without further ado, I'm just going to go in. Welcome on the show, Dr. Kenya. How are you? Thank you so much, Dr. Loon. I'm doing wonderful. And greetings to all of your listeners. Well, yeah, we're glad to have you. So you just matched, by the way. So congratulations. That's a big deal. Thank you so much. Definitely worth rejoicing over. But before we come to your success story, I want us to just go back and kind of learn a little bit about you. So can you tell us sort of where you went to medical school, where you're from, and why or why you will be considered an IMG? Absolutely. I am a U.S. IMG. I went to medical school at the Latin American School of Medicine that's located in Havana, Cuba. I graduated from medical school in 2007. So I guess I'm what they call an old grad. Yeah, 2007. Wow. So we have something we're going to come back to, which is the concept of being an old grad and eventually matching. But yeah, that's really good to hear. So you're a U.S. person that went to a foreign medical school and then you moved back to the States in 2007. Is that correct? That is correct. I did my undergrad at UC Berkeley in California and I was pre-med with a Spanish language and literature um, degree. That's awesome. So what was your push to go to medical school in Havana, Cuba? Well, the decision for me was quite easy. I was bilingual and I always wanted to study medicine. So when I found out about the program and I did receive a six-year scholarship, it was quite easy to make that decision. On top of that, I knew a little bit about the doctors that Cuba trains and and makes. And I was just blown away by how well-trained they are clinically. So when I got accepted to the program, I didn't think twice about it. Yeah. So you speak Spanish. Is that right? Because you're bilingual? That's correct. I learned Spanish as a little girl and then traveled abroad uh, while I was at UC Berkeley twice. And then while I was in college, I was a Spanish teacher, so I speak it very fluently. And I do want to say, I'll give you a little taste of Spanish. I do want to say, gracias a Cuba, soy doctora. And that means, thanks to Cuba, I'm a doctor. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So let's talk about your medical curriculum. What was that like? Is that a five-year program, a six-year program? Is it sort of like the U.S. four-year system? Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So the the medical curriculum in Cuba is a six-year program. The first two years is basic sciences. And the third, fourth, and fifth year are the clinical rotation, so a lot of hands-on with patients. And then your sixth year is called the internship year, where you rotate through the five uh, major specialties, that being like family medicine, surgery, pediatrics, OBGYN, uh, that like for longer times, longer period right. times. So when did you take the USMLE exams? I took all of my USMLE exams after graduation. I didn't even have any attempts while I was 
in medical school. I focused on the Cuban board exams and the Cuban you know, shelf exams and things like that. Once I graduated, I relocated back to the U.S. And then at that point, I studied for the um, USMLEs. I took CS first, the step two CS exam first. And I did that just because for me, I felt that, um, you know, CS being a more clinical exam, I felt more comfortable doing that. My clinical skills were definitely a lot sharper. I graduated in 2007 again, but then I didn't pass the first exam, which was for me BCS until 2013. Okay. Can you talk to us about the order in which you took the tests? Did you do step one first? Yes. I took the CS first and then I went to study for step one. And then after that, I took the CK exams. Now, I do want to say that I am married and I have three children, three young kids. So it was not all back to back, meaning the exams. I got married, then I had a kid, then I studied for one exam, then, you know, had another kid, studied for another, and all the while working as well. So there was a lot on my plate. Yeah, I understand that. So do you regret doing CS first? Because you mentioned that you had two attempts on it. Is that correct? On CS, I did. I did have, do I regret doing it first? No, I don't regret doing it first. What I regret and what in hindsight I would change if I had to do it again, that would be um, my approach to studying, which I rec for me, what worked for me and what I recommend is just knowing what works best to successfully pass these exams. So I studied at home. The first time I studied for it, I had my young baby here with me and I didn't have any live study partners. I didn't take any live, you know, any online courses or anything like that. So let's fast forward to the second attempt and then the attempt on which, on which I passed. I put my baby in daycare. I uh, took a course, got a live study partner. So you kind of learn from your experiences. And I know that for me, that's the type of uh, studying that I need to do study partners, study groups, courses, things like that. So for somebody else who's listening right now and is struggling with a failure on step two CS, because I actually got this question today on Instagram. Someone sent me a message that their husband has not been able to match because he's not been able to match because he's not past step two CS. So if you were to give out like a high yield recommendation for someone like that, what are the key points? What would be the take-home points that you would tell them? For passing CS? Correct. For studying for CS in a manner that ensures that they pass it the first time. Okay. A live study partner, meaning that you can meet them at a library, you can meet them on Skype, but even try to find someone on Skype that's in your area. So for the CS exam, you can actually something, a, a study partner that's tangible so that you can do the encounter full out. That would be my biggest take home for that. I, I agree 100%. I had a roommate in medical school and we were study partners. And we did, when it came to CS preparation, I mean, we played it out just like it was on the test, knock on the door, drape the patient, yes. greet the patient and all of that and ran through the scenarios. Another thing I found really helpful was running through the scenarios in an open book manner the first time. So running through the first eight scenarios, for example, with, you know, with the book in hand so that you remember what questions to ask, what prompts and how to phrase your questions. And then the second time around or the third and the fourth and the fifth time around, not have the book so that you could already have sort of a system in place when you do the repeat work. I don't know if this was similar to your experience or not. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. 
Yeah. Yeah. Try to simulate the exam as much as possible. I know when I was studying, we even like we used our laptop. I know there was a time prior to me taking the exam where you could write it out. But now the exam is you have to type your patient notes. So even do that get a laptop, you know, open up a Word document and even type, Give you, I think it's 10 minutes that you get now, type your notes. So do everything as full out as you can. Right. Definitely. I agree with that a hundred percent. So let's go back to talking about your journey um, because it's very different, right? It's very special. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us, so since 2007 and then now you just matched in 2020. I mean, that's a, that's a long gap, you know, for most people, they'll be freaking out and they would have already given up by now. Right. But I can sense that you had something that worked for you. I don't know what it is. Can you tell us? Absolutely. So I believe honestly that it's, there's a couple of, of mantras or things that I, that helped get me through this time. Even when all of, you know, the odds were against me, I, you know, there were a lot of obstacles in the way, a lot of naysayers as well, but it was just never, I never stopped believing in myself. And that's one thing that I really want to remind and ask our, our listeners to do, to never stop believing in yourself, no matter what anyone says. And then you always have to remember though, the bigger the dream, the harder the grind. So you're up against these obstacles and against the odds, you've got to go even harder, press yourself even harder past what you even think your limit is. And that's exactly what I did. And then there is a verse, a biblical verse, and it's, I can do all things through Christ with strength in me. So just having that faith again, I have a very strong support system behind me. That's my family. And I'm grateful for that. And I think that's important. So, but even for someone who, you know, family support may not be as strong. I also relied on neighbors, friends, um, people that I met along the road, coworkers. So you can, you have to kind of build your village as you go along. Right. Very correct. So in regards to academically, can you walk us through maybe the activities that you were involved in between 2007 and 2020, particularly those that you feel like influenced your decision? Because the listener right now is thinking, man, I have a five-year gap and I felt like all hope is lost. And here I am listening to Dr. Kenner, who's had even more than that, but she still matched. So what are some academic things that you did during that time? Did you do observerships, research? Did you work at a residency program? What are some things that you think could have played a role in boosting your application after so many years? Absolutely. So what I'd like to say is try your best, even while you're studying for your exams, to choose observerships, volunteerships, externships that are that would keep you as clinically relevant as possible. I know that we can't work as physicians, but in my case, I worked as a medical assistant. I did that for several years. And I also worked as an allergy technician. I also was a scribe. I scribed for many years. On top of that, my first passion was teaching. I don't know if you can tell, but I am also, you know, prior to medical school, I was a teacher. So I went back to teaching. I did substitute teaching for several years. And so you know, for those maybe that have a pediatric interest or a specialty that has pediatrics involved that, you know, you can always kind of put a positive light on something. And so I taught elementary school, went back to that. But that's what I did work-wise in the years uh, since I have graduated on top of having three kids. <laughs> and um, I did have an unforeseen and very tragic uh, incident that happened to me for, while I was studying for my first, first board exam. Um, which was the tragic uh, death of my father. 
So I had to overcome that. Thank you so much and, and deal with that grief. And my dad was one of my biggest supporters. So that really did hit me really hard, as well as my family were very close knit. But it's something that I thankfully got through. And it also propelled me just now saying, okay, I'm going to keep going because this is what my father would have always wanted. And, you know, I want to still make him proud. So you just kind of use things that seem negative. You try to find how they can make you better and what you can take home from it. Right, right. So, you know, I've had people ask me this before, whether being a medical scribe helps towards their residency application. What are your thoughts on that? I think yes, because I scribed that for a couple, uh, actually one ER position, one emergency um, medicine position, and then the other was in internal medicine at outpatient clinics. And I received one of my strongest letters from the outpatient internal medicine uh, clinic. I worked there for two and a half years. I worked with the director, the, the medical director there. We developed a very um, close relationship work-wise, and also he had nurse practitioners that were there as well, and they also wrote me letters of rec, but I only used one from the company. So I would say scribing helped me a lot. It helped with my note-taking, and I think that's really important. It'll kind of put you a, a little bit at ease when you're under the pressure to write quick notes, and it was, a, it was an experience that I'm, I'm grateful that I had, and I think it helped shape me, and I absolutely put it on my CV. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So another thing I want to ask is regarding being, because you mentioned also you worked as an allergy technician. Did you feel like that made a difference at all for your application? Well, I put it on my application when it asked for employment. I did put that on there. And let's see here. It's something that, uh, you know, I know that while I was at, while I was at that company, they sent me to Austin, Texas, and that's where I received like an allergy technician certificate. So, I mean, everything that you learn, you can kind of put under your belt and, and use it that time or save it till later. It's just, it's just knowledge that you gain. Yeah. And uh, yes, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but I definitely put it on my CV. I know a lot of times that people have a question, well, I don't know if I should put it on my CV. You can always put things on your CV. CV, I think it's just how you, the light that you shine on them. So right. maybe someone would say, oh, look, that's just an allergy technician. How is that even relevant? I wouldn't put that on mine, but I did. And also too, I think um, Dr. Loom, it's really important because I had such a, a big gap year. And so programs were, are going to want to know what I was doing. And that's essentially what I was doing. Also, let me speak to the moms because they obviously have a very tender place in my heart. So I know it's not easy for the moms. Oh, and also for the dads as well. You're going to go through a lot of mom guilt, mm -hmm. but yes, and mommy guilt is real. Uh, but do it for your little ones. That I kind of turned that mommy guilt around as hard as it was. And I said, you know what? My little ones are the ones that keep, they inspire me. They keep me going because I'm now, you know, I have this legacy to kind of build and leave behind for them. So okay. It's hard. I want to be with them. I don't want them to be in daycare all day. I don't want to send them, you know, to my family's home every vacation. But in the end, it, that's what I needed to do to get stuff done. And it wasn't easy at all. I would not sit here and say to anyone that it, that it, that it was. But I didn't know this. And it's something that I learned that I'd like to share. So in having three kids, obviously, you're, a woman is pregnant with the kid even 10 months prior to that. So there was a lot of gaps. You know, there was a lot of time. And so you can also, it's called, I believe it's called the pregnancy gap 
a pregnancy mom or something. It's, it's a phrase that you can use. And, you know, when you do take time off, if that's what you do, not everyone does it, but if that's what happens and those months and those years can add up. So that's a lot of times we just, yes, we just don't really acknowledge that. Yes. You know, a woman has to go through the whole pregnancy and also then the childbearing afterwards. And so it's, I don't know, it's just a time frame that we don't really talk about, but if it's something that kind of paused what you were doing or halted, or I should say pause, pause is, is, is a better way that I like to think about it. If it's something that had a, put a pause on, then I think it should be acknowledged. And that's something that I didn't find out until way later. Cause I I'm saying this because I did have this big gap in uh, time frame. but what happened between this year and this year? And so that's essentially what was, what was going on behind the scenes. Right. So you're encouraging moms to include that they, if they had a maybe nine or 10 month gap where there were, you know, in the process of childbearing, they can include that on there is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. Or if you don't feel comfortable including, then maybe you can mention it. I mean, I, there was a time where I didn't even know what to say. Like I didn't even, you know, they were like, well, between this year and this year. And in the back of my head, I was thinking, oh, that's when I was, you know, that's when I had my little one, you know, uh, number two, baby number two. And so I didn't really know how to say it, or I didn't know if it would be acceptable to say, or, but it's the reality and it, it can be celebrated as something that should be. And it's exactly what you were doing. So. All right. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it actually, but okay. That's good. So how many times did you apply into residency then? When did you start applying after you completed your steps? I applied to residency. This year was my third year applying. So the first two years that I applied to residency, I did not match. So I say that to say, or I share that to say that even after, even if you don't match after your first time, try again. And even if you don't match up the second time, try again. It's not easy. It's not a, a good feeling, but just never give up. So I think I had approximately about two, yes, about two interviews, two, maybe three with each year that I applied. Yes. And then this year I finally met. This year was my year. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it. How did you feel when you did not match the first and the second time? Yes. It was very devastating, very devastating. I felt, again, a lot of mommy guilt and just a lot of guilt, you know, to my family members, those that were really supportive who had sacrificed with me emotionally, financially. I just felt really responsible and felt like a failure. But I quickly said, okay, each year that I didn't match, I said, what can I do in the next cycle that will boost, that will boost my uh, CV, that will emphasize my strengths even more that will kind of embellish what I'm doing to kind of make me stand out and pop. And so I asked that question to people that have uh, entered the match um, more than once. I said, so what are you going to do for the next cycle? Uh, You know, differently, what's going to make you better? What's going to make your application even more appealing? Because you kind of really have to think about that and then work on those, those weaknesses. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the webinars that I, I like to do at the end of the match season is what you can do to improve your chances of matching the second cycle, especially if you fail to match, you know, after that the most recent cycle. So in your case specifically, can you tell us what you did? So after that first cycle, what did you do different for second cycle? And then what do you, what did you do different from first and second cycle towards this third cycle? 
I think the biggest change for me when I really got it, when I got that aha moment and when I really decided to act on it very aggressively would be from the second cycle to the third cycle. Because I made like small changes, um, you know, from the first to the second. But the biggest thing for me was making the sacrifice to accept a house physician or house officer, it's also called, or an assistant physician, I guess, just depending on the state, they have different titles, accepted that position. And immediately after I didn't, I found that I didn't match the second time. I said, oh no, some things really got to give something. And that's what I did. I applied for the position and uh, interviewed for it and got the position. And then I say it was a big sacrifice for me because I relocated to a different state, state where I didn't have any family and I was leaving my family. So at the time it was just my husband and two kids behind to pursue this new job. And I just knew that it was just going to be a big step for me in the right direction, as well as I did have to really defend the question to a lot of programs and interviewers or, or how am I still clinically relevant? Are my clinical skills since I had such a big gap year? Um, and so speaking to those that may, getting the U.S. clinical experience. And so the position was uh, an amazing opportunity for me to shine on that and to develop that. Wow. That's very courageous to leave your home and move to another state for an opportunity that's not going to guarantee you a residency position. I mean, absolutely. that's a huge... Can I even just... Yes, yes. Can I even just share with you and our listeners that even prior, just early on in accepting the position, I found that that I was going to be, I was expecting my third one. And I didn't think twice about it. I was like, I'm going. So I know a lot of people would have probably said, oh, it's hard enough leaving the two and, you know, a spouse, but no way I'm going to. So I did the whole pregnancy in another state alone, no family. Um, I did make some friends. So, and, and coworkers. And then the baby was actually born there in the other state. So. <laughs> wow. Wow. I really think that for IMGs and this, you're not a non-US IMG, but especially for non-US IMGs, I've noticed that the most successful IMGs really are daring. Like they are willing to go to any end of this country to train for a short period in order to create their own success story. So in many ways, when I listen to you talk, I'm thinking, wow, you moved to another state, left your family behind. Thankfully, it sounds like very supportive spouse, which is, which is very good to have. And you went to do a house officer position. And to me, what I hear is IMGs need to start sacrificing some things in order to get what they want. Because yes, yes, you're going to have the IMGs is going to match in the middle of downtown somewhere, but there's going to be a lot of us that may have to move from home in order to be able to have an opportunity. So I really encourage anyone listening to let that location limitation, um, let it go for a little bit. Like, don't let that hold you back. If there is an opportunity in another state, I want you to be daring enough to take it. It's going to be short. It's going to be for a year or two years or even residency itself. It's not the rest of your life. So sacrificing two or three short years of your life to go to a place where you probably had no ties, no family, 
no support is probably a good foundation for the rest of your life if that's the only option that you are left with. So I really think that part of your story, Dr. Kenya, it really just touches me because I'm thinking, wow, this is the meaning of sacrifice. And I wish a lot of us will learn to sacrifice some things, especially when the odds are against us. Um, now, not no, everybody needs to do that because there's going to be someone just is going to, they're going to graduate and get right into residency at the end of the fourth year. But this is particularly right. for the person who feels like they have an application that may not be the traditional application, like in your case with the gap year or with the mm -hmm. repeat on the CS. But you realize I have to do something to overcompensate for that. I have to do something different to overcompensate for the fact that I have these many gaps or the fact that I had to take the test over again. And that's really the message that I want people to hear today. Would you agree? Well, thank you so much. Oh, absolutely, wholeheartedly. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, that was actually a really solemn moment for me. I'm not going to lie. I was just thinking, wow, 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 wow. Oh, so you so you much. Will, that means so much coming from you. Yeah. You, so you're ready to get into residency this June and start rocking it out. We're not going to go into the details of where you're going and all of that, but what are your dreams? What are some of the things that you're looking forward to now that you finally, 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 after many, many years, since 2007, you've been working at this. And what are some of your dreams? Oh, my goodness. You're right. I have so many that I'd like to accomplish. So I did match into family medicine, and that is the specialty of my dreams. It has uh, it's multifaceted, so it has a little bit of everything that I love, OB and emergency, and I'm just so excited. So I love, I have a passion for uh, global medicine, international medicine. I'm an international medical graduate. I'm a first generation. Um, my parents are from the Caribbean, so um, I'm a first generation here born in the U.S. But, um, and I did, um, my father was in the military, so I kind of grew up traveling all around and kind of got bit by, bit by the travel bug kind of early. And so I love um all things global and international. So I would love to do a lot of, and I love mission work. So yes, yeah, just, I can't wait to start working in underserved communities. I have a passion for them as well here in the U.S. and then globally as well. That's amazing. That is so amazing. I have no doubts that you'll do great things because I believe the people that have the most challenging stories tend to never forget that. And it just infuses into their practice and into the way that they take care of other people. So I'm very confident that that will be the same for you. So can you give the IMG listening, can you give them some final words of hope and wisdom? Yes. First, I'd like to say that, see here, a be a comfortable, um, a comfortable zone or let's see, it's a it's um see a comfort zone is a very comfortable place, but it yields very little. So I'm gonna say you really have to step out of your comfort zone and push yourself beyond limits and just trust the process. And so what I mean by that specifically is go where the opportunities are, even if that means giving up this and giving up that and making so many sacrifices that you don't even know when the end is going to pay off, but you're just trusting the process and it's hard and it can be kind of daunting sometimes. But I think if you never stop believing in yourself, it's just what I really want to reiterate. And that's what I always try to let people know that that's what really helps me. 
to get to where I am today. And just know that you haven't come this far. All of us are medical school graduates. So we are, we've even conquered many obstacles and hurdles even to get to this point. So just continue on and you will get that residency spot of your dream here in the U.S. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I just thought of something that I know someone's going to ask. So I just thought I should ask you before we let you go. How did you get a house officer position? Because there's going to be someone that wants to know how to do that (laughs) during their time while they're waiting to match. Yes, absolutely. So there are three programs, I'm sorry, there are three states in the United States that, uh, to my knowledge, that um, have the house uh, officer position. And so there's a limited permit to practice medicine is what the license is called. And you would need to go. So let me first mention the three states that I'm aware of, New York, Missouri, and Florida. So you would need to go to the the national or the state board of health and do internet searches. Once you um, do your internet research and you find the application, the application again for the state of New York is a limited permit to practice then you would fill out that application. Some applications require a physician to sponsor you or to be your endorsement, like a signing for you, working underneath their license. And some, I know for Missouri, when I was doing my searches at that time, you can apply to jobs. And then from there, once you're interviewed and accepted um, and given the position, then someone in the clinic or the hospital there will sign for you. So it's a really great opportunity. It's a paid position. And so obviously that's a big plus for us who are still in that, in that gray area of not really working. So, and it's a more so than anything, it's a really great clinical opportunity here in the U.S. So I must say that you do need to be ECFMG certified first. You need to have your, all of your exams passed and then you apply for them, apply for it. Awesome. 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 So how does an IMG connect with you? Because they're going to want to know how to reach out to you to ask more about the limited license to practice. Can we connect with you? Mean? (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. You can. So I can be reached uh, on my email at kbingmd at gmail.com. And I'll spell that out for you. It's k-b-i-n-g-m-d at gmail.com. Okay. And of course, they can always reach out to you and you know how to reach me. I'll be right. happy to, yeah, absolutely. I'll be, I'll be happy to, to speak with anyone. Say that again? I said, I'll be glad to connect them with you, obviously. Oh, um, And what I'll do is I'll place your email address in the show notes so that whomever's listening can just click. It's a one click and you should be able to get her email address and contact her if you're interested in knowing more about her story. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Kenya. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome.